Welcome to the Journal.ie's The Explainer, where every week we take a deep dive into a different news story. I'm Sinead O'Carroll, and this week, a forgotten crisis, what is happening to the Rohingya minority in Myanmar. This episode is supported by the Director General for European Civil Protection and Humanitarian Aid Operations. That's DG ECHO for short. Over the past decade or so, we've become horribly used to news stories of mass drownings in the Mediterranean as people cross the sea in search of asylum and a better life in Europe. Unfortunately, a very similar crisis has been ongoing at the same time in the Andaman Sea as the Rohingya minority flee persecution and discrimination in Myanmar. A mass exodus there began after genocidal attacks, brutal treatment from security forces which included the rapes of women and children, and the destruction of many villages. Treacherous boat journeys and statelessness then became a major part of the Rohingya story. Where they land, there is often more immediate safety, but also more problems. They are victims of one of the many global protracted crises, almost forgotten by the wider world. The Explainer, in association with the European Civil Protection and Humanitarian Aid Operations, wanted to examine one of these protracted crises in more detail. And to do that with the Rohingya, we're joined today by Michelle Chichic, who is head of the regional office for DG ECHO in South Southeast Asia Pacific, and Lillianne Pham, the international director and co-founder of the Gatanio Foundation. But before we speak to Michelle and Lillianne, I want to share the story of Hassan bin Rashid. He works with Lillianne at the Gatanio Foundation and is one of the many people who made the treacherous journey across the Andaman Sea. I was born in, in a refugee camp in Bangladesh, which is one of the largest refugee camp currently in the world in, in, in Cooks Bajar, Bangladesh. And I grew up there. I studied in the camp. My family moved to uh, Bangladesh in, back in 1992. As Hassan grew older, he became frustrated by the limited education available within the camp. His father arranged for him to attend a school outside of the camp. This was not permitted by Bangladesh authorities, though, and they eventually found out. There was no education, uh, uh, higher education at the time. There was only until class three in the in the in the school, uh, in the camp. And my father thought that if I continue like that, I won't be able to study further. So he decided to send me back to government school, which is outside the camp. So he did manage some uh, sort of documentation, whatever needed, as, as to say that I'm a Bangladeshi and to get me ad- admitted to the school, which he did. And uh, when I was in grade nine, the management of the school found out that I was Rohingya. Uh, not only me, with some of my other friends who they knew that we were Rohingya and we were asked to leave the school. Because in Bangladesh, refugees are not allowed to go to a school, to the government school. And what age were you at this point? I was 14, yeah. I was four, uh, just turned 14, I guess. And how did you feel about not being allowed to go to school? I, I lost it and I was very angry at myself and everything. And I went back home and I told my mom, my dad was not with us that time. My dad was in Saudi uh, Saudi Arabia uh, until today he's there. And uh, my, I told my mom that this is what happened to me. And she was like, well, she can't do anything for that because that's not her country. If that was her country, she can go and fight with the management why I'm not allowed to go to school. Well, in somebody else's country, so she can't do anything. I told them then I will have to find my own way. I contact my friend who were already in Malaysia at that time. They came by boat. So they did warn me, like, don't don't choose this this journey because it's very dangerous. People die on this. And I said, no, no, I'm, I'm just asking. Uh, they gave me the number and I contacted this trafficker and he told me I will be in Malaysia in three days. It was very nice. And uh, three days, I thought maybe I will just sleep straight for three days. Three days. And then when I woke up, hopefully I'll be in Malaysia. I asked him like whether there will be enough uh, medicine for me and like, if I fall sick or enough clean water, 
a space to rest. And she said, everything, he said, he told me like, everything is enough and uh, it's going to be good. You will have everything. Then he gave me a time and date to, to meet me. Uh, and then I went to meet him outside. Then he put, he put me in touch with another trafficker. As soon as I went to the trafficker house, I see my other friends are there from the, from the camp. They were also coming to Malaysia. I was like, okay, some kind of relief that I got some friends here. The group were taken on a small boat out to international waters between Bangladesh and Myanmar. There, they were transferred to a larger, more crowded vessel with as many as 300 people on board. I was kind of surprised and I told the guy, this is not what I was promised. I want to go back. And this guy came up to me, this trafficker on the boat and said, you know, very scary, loud. And like, this is one way. You can't go back. And my friend was like, don't argue with these guys. They are very dangerous. Then I just kept silent. There was no other way for me to go back. So I said, okay, let's go. Let's see what happens. So when we had 318 people on the boat, enough passenger, they start moving the boat from uh, from Bangladesh towards Thailand. And then by land from Thailand to Malaysia. So that was the plan. When we arrived in the uh, Thai uh, territory, we realized that well, at least six, seven other boats were waiting for uh, waiting there like for six, seven months. And we were kind of surprised. We asked them, why you guys are not in, uh, in, in Thailand yet? They said, uh, it's, the border is very tight now. We can go because in 2015, I think Thai government was cracking down all the traffickers in the in the border, in the forest in, in Thailand. So they couldn't bring anyone inside. So they had to just let us uh, stay on the, on the boat at the sea there. And at some point they decided to abandon us, the traffickers. Before abandoning the group, the traffickers taught one refugee how to sail the ship and threw all fresh water and food overboard. One man tried to stand up to them. There was a guy who, who asked them, we, we have been paid. We paid you guys already six uh, 6,000 Malaysian ringgit, what we promised we will give you in order for us to bring to Malaysia. Now it's your turn to bring us to Malaysia. Why you guys are abandoning us? And they just shot him there. They shot him? Yeah. When they shot him, everyone uh, became very scared, scared and kept silent because they, they now they're using a weapon. They were left at sea with no means of communication or navigation, but somehow they eventually caught the attention of passing fishermen. They came to our boat. They they, they drove us all the way to Indonesia and went to Indonesian shore. In the morning, they came. Uh, the Indonesian Navy came, and then they, they it was very nice to us. They, uh, they gave us food. They gave us clean water. They asked what happened and everything. And, uh, and we told them, we just this is what happened. We just want to go to any land. And they said, okay, we will help you. They tie our boat and then with, with the Navy boat, with a big rope, and they start pulling us for about 12 hours. After 12 hours, they just cut the rope and run away. In five minutes, they disappeared. We were at the middle of nowhere now. So we did not know where we were. After a few days, uh, two Malaysian Navy came. That's when we realized they pushed us back to Malaysian uh, border. So we were in Malaysia, Malaysian Navy came and then they was quite surprised. They couldn't find us. They was like, we have been looking for you guys. Where have you been? We want to rescue you, blah, blah, blah. And we were very happy. We were like, oh. okay, then uh, we met them. They were very nice guys. Uh, they feed us. They fixed our engine. Our engine was broken, actually, uh, when we were in Indonesia. They fixed our engine. They gave us uh, food and everything, extra food for, for us to eat. And they said, let's go. They tie us again. And they start pulling, pulling our, our boat again. So they pull up another 12 hours. Suddenly they stop. They came by and they said we could see uh, other boats are floating on our on our radar here. 
maybe we should go and rescue them so we can bring all the boat together to Malaysia. We said, okay, it's fine. Because they were they were also with us. We just got split it when they, they decided to abandon us. Please go and bring them. We will wait for you guys here. And we waited for almost one or two weeks. They never show up there. And by the time they, 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 it was, we almost, we got out of food. We had nothing to eat. We didn't have any uh, drinks at all, uh, clean water to drink. People on board slowly became weaker and weaker. Some on the lower decks eventually became too ill to move. And rather than come up to the top deck to get water, they broke a hole in the side of the boat. That desperation meant the boat started to sink. A passing cargo ship failed to stop to help and Hassan watched many people who had been on the boat drown. They could have, they would have saved a lot of life. And they thought maybe we were doing Titanic too. God knows what they thought about it. They just waved at us, hi, and they left. They, they would have saved a lot of people. A lot of people died. I, I remember when I was swimming with the Oud, nine of us, uh, only two of us survived from one way. A lot of people, that the, the water was very cold. They were just sinking. I could see them. They said, I can't hold it anymore. They're just thinking. So they would have saved a lot, of, a lot of life, but they did not. After about five hours at sea, those who survived were rescued by another fishing boat and brought to Aceh in Indonesia, where local people were quick to help. And they came with whatever they had. They brought rice, they brought uh, clothes, they brought uh, clean water, they brought medicine for everyone. And immediately they set up the medical field and everything. And uh, I was the only person in, in the, on, the, on the boat who could speak both languages. Bangu, uh, Bengali, and and Rohingya. So they needed somebody to interpret for both both group. So I was immediately taken away to hospital by a doctor, and she kept me at her house. She gave me a room to stay, and then I used to go to hospital with her every day to interpret for the people who are coming because the people were literally suddenly after three months we were in the land. Everyone was vomiting, and then uh, they were just falling around. And they used to go to hospital, come back, and come back. Hassan's family had not heard from him for five months. His friends who made it to Aceh presumed he was dead, but he was at the hospital helping out rather than staying with them at the refugee camp. He was eventually able to speak to his mother, who refused to believe he was alive until she was convinced by his sister. He stayed at the camp helping with translation, which is where he met Liliane. He sought her help getting resources and equipment to teach English to people at the camp. I approached her and I told her, look, this is what I want to do. I need a list of this. And uh, I was kind of shy and I said, that, no, let's just go and ask for it. <laughs> I want her, I showed her, this is what I need, and supplies. They, 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 uh, Lillian from Gitanyo Foundation, they brought me all the supplies I need. Books, pen, pencils, whiteboard, and everything I needed, they brought. So I started a class there. And after I was there for about eight months. After eight months, I got a call from my mom and saying that, I paid some money for you for, to the traffic. I need to pay the money back because that's not my money. I borrowed as well. So I was kind of like, in Indonesia, I'm not allowed to work. How am I going to pay this money back? So I called my friend again, uh, who were in Malaysia. They said, we told you once not to come. Now you are planning to come again. Don't come. Don't take boat again. I said, I can't travel by plane, but I need to work. Tell me what do I do. They said, well, then uh, you can come to Malaysia again. So I took, I took boat another time to come to Malaysia, from Indonesia to Malaysia, because that's the only way left for Rohingya to travel. We don't have any document, sort of legal document, uh, that we can travel. So I took another boat, come to Malaysia. Then uh, I started again working with Lillian, the only person I know. How did you feel about getting onto another boat? It's kind of normal. And uh, the guy was 
quite friendly. Uh, previous trip was very hard, and this trip was only for one night. 12 hours, it was like uh, three months on the boat and one day, two days. It's nothing. Let's just go. <laughs> Lillian was, uh, she got almost had a heart attack when she knew that I told her that I decided to go to Malaysia by boat again. She was kind of, Hassan, no, don't go. Don't take the race. Don't take the race. And I turned off my phone. They, she went she she went with the whole team, Indonesian team, to find me in, in the traffic area. And uh, they, they couldn't find me. And eventually I made it in uh, January 5th, 2016. I made it to Malaysia. And that was the incredible story of Hassan bin Rashid, who is still working with the Catania Foundation after Lilian took him under her wing. Michelle, though, I want to come to you first with my first question. That was such a powerful story from Hassan, and people will be somewhat familiar with the Rohingyas from stories over the past decade. But can you just explain a bit more about who they are and how their persecution dates back a bit longer than Hassan's story? Um, Before 2017, when the the Rohingya were forced to flee persecution in Myanmar to Bangladesh, an estimated 1.4 million Rohingya used to live in Myanmar. Um, today, though, the figures are seen to be around uh, 560,000, which remain in Rakhine, with approximately 415 living in what we call confined villages, and another 145,000 in camps for internally displaced people. But as you rightly said, Sinead, the 2017 displacement, which was actually the largest and the fastest displacement from Myanmar into into Bangladesh, was not the first displacement. So we've had several rounds of displacement of Rohingya from Myanmar into Bangladesh. And as far back as 1978, um, and then there was a, a subsequent round in between 1991 and 1992. And again, in, in 2016, Rohingya, I would say, have faced, I mean, it's well known that they have faced systematic discrimination, statelessness and targeted violence in Rakhine State. And it's even been described by some as being the most, some of the most persecuted um, people in the world. And I've seen a quote from the UN's High Commissioner for Human Rights where he said the situation appeared to be a textbook example of ethnic cleansing. When we talk about protracted crises, it's such a powerful example of what the world needs to deal with. Lillian, can you bring us up to the mid-2010s? Michelle has just mentioned it there. The situation broke down completely and led to genocide. What exactly happened? So I, I think we do need to really understand what's currently happening to the Rohingya in the context of many decades of violence. Um, there has been a very long history of Rohingya basically being stripped of basically almost every human right. And that stems from their denial of citizenship um, under the 1982 citizenship law in Burma. What we did see, though, in basically starting in uh, 2012, we basically started to see much more intensification of direct violence against Rohingya um, in Rakhine State. We basically had outbursts of violence twice in 2012, um, and then again, almost every year, massive violence which displaced hundreds of thousands of people, not just Rohingya, but also the Rakhine, who are the majority in Rakhine State. Um, The Rohingya are a Muslim minority in Rakhine State, who are stateless, but there's also um, the larger majority, which is a Rakhine, who are Buddhist. And there are other smaller minorities as well. And many 
people were displaced, but I would say by far the largest number of persons displaced have been Rohingya. And it's it's actually been in several parts of, of the state, in Rakhine state. At that point, it was mainly internal displacement. Basically, you've had many years of basically denial of human rights, a lack of access to education, a lack of access to livelihoods, um, local orders against Rohingya, which really restrict them in every way, which would be such um, things as specific restrictions on movement um, and even restrictions on uh, basically basic permission, like, you know, getting uh, registered for marriage. They would also need special permission to do that. And it just creates an entire environment of you know, obviously discrimination, but then Rohingya are always forced into a position where they have to pay bribes to officials to be able to get those um, permissions, to be able to get the travel authorization, to be able to get, you know, permission to even have a family. Um, and that then basically spiraled into very direct violence um, 2012 onwards. And we kept seeing the intensification of this violence, which also uh, at one point really started targeting the international community. Uh, as well. So any any humanitarian organization, particularly the international ones who were trying to assist uh, the Rohingya, were also then targeted because uh, there was basically a lot of hate speech against Rohingya. There was a lot of, um, is, well, there was Islamophobia as well, very orchestrated uh, Islamophobia campaigns, which then affected and uh, amplified the anti-Rohingya sentiment. And what we then saw was basically a real deterioration in the situation in Rakhine and so much uh, hatred against the Rohingya that was really starting to become, I would say, very out of hand um, and very overwhelming, very little sympathy and very little solidarity for the Rohingya and the rest of uh, Myanmar, which then led to a situation where when the massive violence really started um, and when we saw genocidal violence take place, against the Rohingya, we also saw um, an overwhelming um, silence actually coming from the uh, the larger population in Burma, which I think was very frightening for those of us who were watching this happen, that there was so much silence and almost um, an acceptance of the, of the level of horrific violence that was being. Lilian, was that a change? Had that sentiment worsened over the years? It had definitely worsened over the years, um, Sinead. I would say that over the last few decades, it hasn't been an easy um, relationship that the Rohingya have had, but there was still, I would say, a level of um, coexistence that was possible uh, within Rakhine State and not really, you didn't really see very extremely targeted hatred um, specifically against the Rohingya. You did, of course, have all of those, um, the, that structural discrimination in place, which of course is at the root of all of this. Um, but you, what you didn't see was extreme, you know, horrific genocidal violence taking place, basically uh, in a climate of almost um, acceptance of, you know, such uh, atrocities. Is the root of that hatred and the root of that initial discrimination sectarian in nature at all? I would say it's a little bit more complex than that. I mean, it, it goes back, I think, to the extremely complex political history that Burma, you know, now called Myanmar, uh, has had. And that is one where they've basically been under military rule for such a long time. And you've seen basically that Burma basically tried to establish a democratic system uh, post-independence, and it failed quite quickly. It actually failed very quickly. So you had um, a very strong and inward-looking 
paranoid uh, military, which took over governance uh, of Myanmar and really tried to um, contain the unity of Myanmar by consistently, again, you know, playing the sort of divide and rule, but really also having to fight civil wars on almost every side of the border. And Myanmar itself is surrounded by many different countries. It's surrounded by China, India, Bangladesh, on the other hand, Thailand. So it is um, a country where, you know, there are many borders and ethnic minorities who live on those borders. Um, When the country of Burma actually realized its independence, there was no real successful agreement between basically how that, that diversity should be governed. And it wasn't just about diversity ethnically, it was really about um, the center periphery control as well, um, how that should really be managed. And um, the sort of vision that in fact was, uh, you know, sort of put forward by um, the father of Aung San Suu Kyi, um, who was in fact the father of the nation, as they called him, Aung San, General Aung San, um, who was the first um, premier of Burma, in fact, before independence, he never really saw independence. He was killed, um, assassinated about six months before. The kind of vision that he and his sort of democratic political leaders had at that time was one where there was an acceptance of that diversity. There was um, representation. There was going to be you know, a voice given to all the different uh, ethnic groups. The ideology that started to come in um, when that failed then was a very centralized vision. It was very much a Burma Buddhist vision. It was one that did not recognize um, the diversity of the indigenous uh, groups in Myanmar. It didn't recognize the religious diversity. It basically created these extremely artificial divides of you know, who was an insider and who's an outsider. And those lines got drawn. And the Rohingya, you know, since definitely since 1982, but I would say even before that, was started to be uh, to be completely excluded, and then that exclusion was really codified under the 1982 um, citizenship law, when the Rohingya ethnic group as a whole was just not uh, anywhere to be found uh, as an official, officially recognized uh, ethnic group in Myanmar. You mentioned Aung San Suu Kyi there, as well as her father. Our listeners will be familiar with her because obviously she was the winner of the Nobel Peace Prize, but she was also stripped of the freedom of Dublin, an honour that she was given, but then taken away from her when it emerged what had been happening with the Rohingya. What is her place in all of this crisis? Um, I would say that Do Aung San Suu Kyi is uh, a very complex figure, especially when it comes to the Rohingya crisis. I mean, she's obviously still very revered um, by many as, you know, the leader who really spearheaded uh, the democracy movement uh, back in 1988. And this is when um, you saw uh, the stepping down of um, General Ne Win at the time. And then there was a sort of gap in governance and massive democratic um, protests started to emerge. Um, and Aung San Suu Kyi had actually just come back from England at the time. You know, she actually had quite a, um, a diplomatic uh, upbringing Obviously, her father, who was, uh, you know, General Aung San, but also her mother was an ambassador. Um, and then she was coming back to Burma exactly in 1988 and found herself really, you know, in the middle of this um, democracy movement and assumed that role as a leadership, uh, as a leader of the um, National League for Democracy, the NLD, um, and was really the country's biggest hope, I would say, at the time for for many decades. And of course, you know, the military quickly tried to crush that movement put Aung San Suu Kyi under house arrest, 
at least, you know, the first time she got under, she was placed under house arrest several times. But when she finally did, in fact, become an official leader uh, in Myanmar, recognized within the government, that did happen, you know, between um, 2016 and 2021, um, first as foreign minister and then as uh, state councillor, which is equivalent to uh, prime minister. I would say it was not quite as straightforward as many of us on the outside had sort of hoped. You know, she was always an icon of human rights, um, an icon of democracy. But we tend to forget that Aung San Suu Kyi is also very much the daughter of basically the father of the military of Myanmar. So in Aung San Suu Kyi's mind, I think it's safe to argue that she didn't see her role as, you know, really just countering the military. It was more about finding a way to work with the military and to bring the military into um, a form of governance that was you know, acceptable and was, you know, perhaps more democratic. Um, and that, you know, the entire transition to democracy arguably was in fact designed by the military itself. So it was sort of trying to reform um, and to gain that trust with the military. And I think that, you know, she is also the product of the history and assumptions um, that everybody in uh, Myanmar grew up with, which very much is, you know, has been that Rohingya are not from here, you know, they're not from Myanmar, they're from elsewhere. Um, and that narrative has been so firmly driven in to um, people in Myanmar that it's still something very hard to accept. And I think that her um, defense of the military, um, you know, during the genocide of violence really shocked the world, it really shocked um, many people and the failure to sort of speak up. And I would say that it certainly as you know, for... Um, those of us who are working very closely with Rohingya, we found it extremely, really unfortunate and very heartbreaking to see just that lack of ability to defend the most, you know, such a vulnerable population that has just been victimized and brutalized and dehumanized over and over again. Michelle, Lillian talks there about the statelessness and the discrimination. But when Rohingyas flee, they often land in places where they still encounter problems. Cox's Bazaar is a city in Bangladesh. It's often the first stop. Can you let us know how many people are there right now? Yeah, no, indeed. I mean, so essentially right now in Bangladesh, so namely in Cox Bazaar, there's a series of 34 um, camps where almost one million people reside. The As we mentioned earlier, the large majority of that caseload arrived in 2017. But there were the remaining balance or let's say approximately 300 plus thousand that were there uh, living in the in the camps prior to 2017. But it's not the only place, of course, where, where Rohingya find themselves. We also, according to UNHCR, we have a, a caseload of approximately 18,000 refugees that live in India, um, Indonesia, slightly shy of 700 Thailand 200 and also UNHCR then estimates that approximately 100,000 are in Malaysia. The issue though is that you know the, the figures I would say probably outside of what the figures that we know in Bangladesh are not entirely clear. I mean we're, we're not there's no let's say screening mechanisms in many of these countries that exist. So these are really very, I would say, again, outside of Bangladesh, I think these are really rough figures. It could be higher, it could be lower. 
Um, but I would tend to believe that it's more on the higher um, side of things. In terms of, of the conditions that um, that refugees are finding themselves in, in in Bangladesh, I mean, obviously the scale is massive. It is overwhelming. It is it is, uh, is, it is a lot. And, and of course, the government of Bangladesh is to be also commended for the hosting of, of refugees. Having said this, of course, some challenges still remain, namely the lack of freedom of movement, the lack of livelihood opportunities, the lack of, of possibility of having formal uh, education, be it you know, outside of the camps. Uh, inside the camps, uh, children do have access to education and more recently the Myanmar curricula. Also, access to healthcare uh, and basic health needs does exist on site. Um, but, you know, of course, with such a large population and, and given the, that the, all of this is dependent on, on funding and on external resources, that the services that can be provided to those refugees very much depends on the money that's coming or not coming and the limitations that we have in all of that. Lillian, often people in these camps, like Hassan, want to leave them and then they end up, like Michelle said, in many countries in the area. What is greeting the refugees when they land? You're in Malaysia, so you can make, maybe talk to us about what happens there. Unfortunately, most of the countries in the region, including Malaysia, do not have a domestic framework even on protecting refugees and granting them access to basic rights and basic services. So it's really a struggle, I would say, for most refugees uh, when they do arrive. First of all, to even find out how to go about getting whatever kind of documentation they're able to to get. And that the first thing I would say that protects um, a refugee somewhat in Malaysia would be having a card or any document that's basically issued by the UNHCR office here in Malaysia. Because while that isn't recognized as a legal document, it at least gives that individual a document that is issued by a UN agency with a mandate for international protection of refugees and asylum seekers. And there is slowly a process of uh, reform that's taking place in Malaysia uh, policy-wise to try to give some type of rights to uh, individuals who hold those documents. In the meantime, though, before we actually have those policies announced, it's actually really a struggle. Um, A lot of people don't have that access to UNHCR, partly because, and I think for Rohingya, actually, it's even more difficult because many Rohingya are illiterate because they've been denied that access to education for so many decades. Most women are illiterate completely. Men usually have a low level of literacy, but at least some basic literacy. But there are, you know, we still meet many Rohingya, Hassan and I, um, as we travel around the country to meet the communities, still many men who also have absolutely zero literacy. So it's very difficult for them to even understand you know, what's the process to get registered? You know, how do we use, UNHCR has a website where you can uh, request registration. It's not actually registering, but you can make a request. And that basically leaves people in a situation where they are susceptible to arrest all the time. So many Rohingya, unfortunately, end up in our immigration detention centers. And it's a real struggle also for the immigration because you can't deport people. You can't, you can't deport Rohingya to Myanmar. You know, Myanmar will not accept them back because they are not recognized citizens. So we actually have detention centers across Malaysia that are holding Rohingya refugees 
for no other reason, not for criminal reasons, just for the fact that they don't have the right documentation, but also not able to deport them. Um, so you have the situation of prolonged detention. If communities are able to make their way into Malaysia and reside without um, getting arrested, they still face numerous difficulties. Number one would be finding a job. Rohingya actually do work in Malaysia, even though we haven't granted the legal right to work for refugees. Refugees have to work, so you know, obviously they have to survive, but they're all doing so informally because of the denial of education. They're usually sort of at that lowest level of the labor market, but they're very hardworking. And, you know, a, a lot of people like to hire them because they work very hard and learn skills very quickly. But without those legal protections, they're often susceptible, obviously, also to subjected to exploitation. Yeah, there's definitely like a compounding of problems every single day. Michelle, then how exactly does DG Echo fit into this picture? What are the actions that you can actually take? For, for ourselves, I mean, we have uh, an office in uh, in Thailand. We have uh, also offices in Myanmar and in Bangladesh. And so through these offices, we are supporting our partners. It could be the Red Cross, the UN, some non-governmental organizations. Um, uh, Gatanya Foundation is also one of the, the partners that we have been funding in the past so we fund these agencies to provide support to, to Rohingya, be it inside of Bangladesh, in Rakhine, in, in Myanmar, in, in Thailand, in the, the detention centers, or those who find themselves in, in, in India, in Malaysia, Indonesia, those who are getting stuck on, on the boat. So it's a whole host of activities that we're supporting. Um, so it could be, for example, um, support to um, food, provision of food to those in the camps in Bangladesh and in Myanmar. It could be uh, support to education. It could be support to also um, nutritional um, activities, shelter, provision of shelter, because, of course, we know that for those uh, refugees who are living either in Rakhine or indeed in the camps in Bangladesh, the shelters are extremely flimsy. They're prone to, you know, to, well, also to fire, of course, but they're also prone to natural disasters. You know, keeping in mind that, you know, Bangladesh, for example, also Myanmar are two countries which are very much prone to natural disasters, including cyclones. So it's really support to provision of this humanitarian aid to Rohingya to address the, the basic needs that they have. Um, but likewise, we we don't limit ourselves only to financial assistance. We also do play a role in terms of advocating through our colleagues that operate in the EU delegations um, who meet with the various uh, governments within the region to advocate for safe disembarkation, safe rescue uh, of the boats, and to call for also uh, search and rescue operations to come and assist to provide also food, water, medicine to those um, who are on the boats and ultimately to, at the end of the day, find ways in which we can also contribute towards uh, people, you know, um, reducing the need to even take the boat in the first instance. Lillian, what's the population response to the boat crisis? Is there a tension between ordinary people in the region about what they want their governments to do about it all? I would say it's it's quite divided. And I, I would say that um, since COVID-19, you know, the sentiment, particularly towards Rohingya, has really shifted. 
and not really in you know what we see as a, a as a positive way. I mean, because we work in you know this humanitarian field, we understand why Rohingya are coming. But I think most people in Malaysia don't actually understand that very well. Um, you know, they they've maybe not really understood first of all the kind of extreme uh, discrimination and persecution that Rohingya face in Myanmar, and you know why they even had to flee en masse into Bangladesh. Um, and then there's a very low understanding of actually what the situation is like in Bangladesh as well. It, you, there used to be a strong sense of sort of solidarity uh, with Rohingya, and um, particularly because Malaysia is a majority Muslim country. We're a diverse, um, very plural country, but the majority um, you know, here are, are Muslims. And there's obviously a humanitarian kind of a solidarity concern for Muslims around the world who are facing that kind of persecution. And, and we used to hear that more before COVID-19. But, you know, now I would say, unfortunately, we we do have um, sentiment in the country, which has become also very uh, xenophobic and have been using, you know, the sort of image of Rohingya boats arriving, you know, the violation of our, basically our borders and our territory and, you know, a real sort of narrative that's been trying to criminalize uh, refugees really paint them as um, you know criminals who are coming here uh, when they have protection elsewhere when they really shouldn't be coming here. You know, there's there's the sense of fear, and I think it's obviously not something that's unique to Malaysia, but it's something that definitely does exist here as well. I wouldn't say that it is the only sentiment here. It is definitely something that is is very challenging, but I think it's also because there's been such a lack of policy. For refugees across the board, a lot of communities are feeling, you know, that they just don't know how to manage refugees and they don't know who the authority is. They don't know what the procedures are. There's very little understanding of, you know, not only who the Rohingya are and, you know, why they're coming, but also how are they supposed to be managed here? What is the route for them to have education? And people get upset when they see Rohingya working because they know Rohingya are not supposed to work. So I do think that there are there's a real role that policy has to play in this, um, and there has to be work at the community level to really explain to local communities, you know, how does this benefit all of us? It's not about favoring one community um, over another, and there's actually really nothing to fear. And in fact, there are ways that you know, embracing and um, empowering and you know, supporting this vulnerable community with self reliance is actually very beneficial to us. I mean, you know, giving education. Um, and training to Rohingya youth, for example. I mean, you know, just from our experience, having Hassan uh, on our team, you know, as soon as Hassan came to Malaysia, we basically hired him and he's been our, our really our right-hand man. I mean, he's in the management now, you know, he's leading the design and um, the coordination of all the Rohingya programs. It's really incredible what he's been able to achieve. Um, and, you know, to give back to his own community, but also to others. So during COVID-19, you know, Hassan was one of the people out in the communities every day doing um, COVID-19 tests. And, you know, not just for Rohingya, but for local communities as well, you know. And I think that's um, the kind of thing which we need to be seeing. We need to understand how when we invest in people and give people opportunities, you know, they can really give back to us. Michelle, Lillian touched on a couple of things there, but what for DJ Echo is the long-term solution here? It's obvious, I think, to all of us that are working on on this uh, on this situation, is that you know, at the end of the day, I mean, the root cause of of this lies in in Myanmar, 
um, you know, that you have a large majority of people who just want to go home. I mean, they don't want to be refugees. They don't want to be living in, in a camp, in a flimsy, you know, shelter with overcrowded that has, you know, um, severe limitations in terms of access to water and to food and to freedom of movement and to access to jobs. They just want to live a life of peace and in safety and with dignity. So, um, you know, right now with the, the current situation in, in Myanmar, which is, I mean, I, I suppose what I failed to also mention earlier, but one really important point is that, you know, and prior to the coup, which took place in Myanmar in February of 2021, I mean, the humanitarian community in Myanmar was primarily only working in the, the Rakhine area on the Rohingya issue. But now for humanitarians in Myanmar, they find themselves working across or trying to work across the whole country of Myanmar, which has put an immense amount of pressure on agencies um, to try to navigate the space to, to be able to respond and provide and address, you know, the humanitarian needs that exist across the entire country. Um, so what we're seeing there is a situation of civil war that really needs to, it needs to end. There needs to be a solution that's found whereby at some point, you know, in the near future, hopefully, that, you know, Rohingya could safely return to Myanmar based on a, you know, purely voluntary decision. But at the moment, that option does not exist. It, you know, it is impossible to return to, you know, a country which is in a state of, of civil war. It's not safe. It's not conducive. It's impossible. So, um, one of the other options is, of course, resettlement um, and resettlement could be an option, but that would depend on, you know, third countries like the states, like European countries, etc., opening up spaces to take refugees into their countries and to allow them to, to contribute to those societies. Whereas, as Lillian said, where there is where we know there's economic shortages, we know, I mean, take, for example, in Ireland at the moment, there's a severe gap in, in the supply and demand of, of labour. So, you know, looking at, at sort of other economies who are having such shortage, that the space is there. But I do feel that there is, a, you know, unfortunately, what we are seeing in this day and age now is, is sort of a tendency to politicise and instrumentalise refugees. And we need to try to change the narrative a little bit on this and to, to, to show that refugees bring with them a skill set. They bring with them um, a drive and a, a will and a strength to work, to live a life uh, and to contribute to, to societies. And um, I mean, maybe just to end on, on with one story that we heard from, you know, a woman who was a, you know, a female headed household refugee in the camps in Bangladesh, two small children, uh, you know, trying to do the best that she could for those kids. Um, they were both abducted and held for ransom um, and subsequently released. Um, and so for her, you know, she said, well, you know, of course, I know that it is extremely risky for me to take the boats, but, you know, it's also risky for me to stay in the camp where they where we see an increase in security. Um, so for her, she deemed it less risky to take a boat than stay in the camp. And I think this says it all. 
Um, so we have to, I think, as a collective community, try to come together and see where where we can make this change for once and for all. Thank you, Michelle, and thank you, Lillian, for explaining all of this. As we said at the start, we really wanted to put focus on a protracted crisis, and this polycrisis that the Rohingya are facing is so important to delve into. So really, thank you so much. And I want to end on Hassan. I asked him as part of our conversation, what's the one thing he'd like people listening to the podcast to know about his people's struggles? We are one of the very uh, poor community from Myanmar who have been suffering a very long time in, in this region of the world and uh, so that we want to go back home one day. We want to live in our land. That's where we belong. We always hope to go back there peacefully in our country with full rights so we can live there. Thank you for listening to The Explainer and a big thank you to Liliane and Michelle for joining me. A particular thanks to Hassan for sharing his own personal and powerful story. This episode of The Explainer was brought to you by senior producer Nikki Ryan. It was sponsored by DG Echo. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider supporting us so we can continue to make more just like this one. There's a couple of things you can do. Head to thejournal.ie forward slash contribute to become a monthly subscriber or make a one-off donation. You can also leave us a review and rating wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's a great way to make sure other people will listen and love it as well. Thank you and catch you next time. <laughs>